Welcome to the Revenue Blueprint. This is not another sales podcast on tips and tactics. Instead, we focus on unfiltered stories from founders and early stage sales leaders on what it takes to build a successful revenue team. If you get just a little bit of value from this, we ask that you pay it forward by liking, sharing, and subscribing to the podcast. All right, let's get into the episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Revenue Blueprint. Today, I'm joined by Seth, as always, and JT Levin. JT is the head of sales at August Health. He was also... Um, oh, he's, he's asking you to pause. It's it's pronounced... You spelled it right. It's it's pronounced Levine. Oh, shit. Okay, good. Yeah, we, will put the, uh, we had an E. We came through Ellis Island, and we lost our E. We kept the pronunciation, but it was too logistically impossible to get the E put back on. Man, so we have the pronunciation, but every single person says that, and they're right. You know, most nine times out of ten. <laughs> All right, well, you know, what? we'll keep it in, dude. Keep I'm gonna, it I'm gonna keep this, this in. Great. This is good. Yeah. So we're we are with JT Levine. Excuse now me. Now we all know how to say his last name. So. Now we know. Yeah. Right. It's it's public record now. Um. So no one will ever get it wrong. Uh. But J <laughs> JT, he was the the first sales hire. He's been the first sales hire at three different companies. Um. Previously, he was first sales hire at ChartHop and then became the VP of sales there. They're a Series C HR tech company backed by A16Z. He was early sales hires at Yext, Sailthrough, Enigma. So he has great perspective on what it's like to build early, early stage sales teams. So JT, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to, to hear your stories and talk through some of this stuff. So um, let's, because you've been at, some of these companies that have done really well, which of these sales roles had the biggest impact on your career? Well, I think I'm lucky that it, it was sort of a fortuitous sort of sequence of jobs that ultimately got me here. And it's less about one role and more about the way that they build on each other. I feel really lucky to have started at Yext because it was such a grind. It was an inside sale. It was a cold call. It was three to four hours a day on the phone. What I didn't know at the time and have come to realize later was that the standards that were being set, I mean, that was first job out of school. I, I was just young and dumb. Uh, the standards that were being set were significantly higher than what was acceptable at most other places. And so I feel really lucky that that was the initial standard because that has, has become the standard for me. The other thing about it is that when you spend that much time on the phone, you learn to talk to all kinds of different people and different personalities. And it's, I think it's really important in a sales process, you, you have to have some amount of kind of deference to the personality of the people and the organization that you're selling to. And when you spend four hours a day talking to veterinarians and dentists and TV repairmen and chiropractors, you get to see all kinds of different personalities. And then from there, you know, sales through took me into a real complex sort of enterprise sale. And you got to understand things like power-based selling, you know, individual buyer motivations, you know, complex deal management. Um, you got to understand how to sort of nurture and look after a deal. And all of those skills then kind of brought me into Enigma, where it was really much more of a consultative kind of custom solution driven sale. Um, it wasn't as much about us having a product that solved one specific issue. Uh, as it was about us being able to solve a myriad of problems 
and sitting down with the buyers, figuring out what the most important and pressing were, and then working with them on a custom solution. That then brings me to Chart Hop, where uh, you know I was the first sales hire and, and built the team from scratch there. And um, now I'm sort of doing something similar at a, at a company called August Health. May I go back to the beginning? And there's so much to unpack there, but the cold calling massive volumes of people to just get those reps of dealing with different types of people feels like such a foundational, or I believe it is such a foundational kind of entry point uh, to selling, right? And maybe that's why that was always traditionally the first hire as is SDR still, but like it helps you prepare for how to sell by dealing with lots of different personalities at scale every day over a long period of time. Like how do you see, how do you see leaders like us filling the gaps for folks who maybe it's more email based or LinkedIn or fewer calls. Like, is there a way to kind of get folks up to speed to get them those type of reps? If it's, if it doesn't like, is there another way or how do you fill that gap or is it just lost to the history? I think a lot of people want to believe that sales is something you're either sort of inherently good at or not. And, and there, I do see in general, a lack of appreciation for, practice and just for reps and for screwing it up and for saying things that uh, maybe didn't sound the best the first time or maybe were just you know silly to say because you you didn't understand the space or the buyer their specific problems well enough to kind of get the answer right you just have to to keep doing it um, and so if you are email based you're going to become really good at writing emails uh, or building sequences and if you are lucky enough to have a cold call job. And I, I think you mentioned the SDR team and you're right, but there's something different about actually closing a sale versus closing a meeting, right? Before actually putting putting people in a position to agree to say, yes, I will pay money for that. Uh, and so if given the choice, yeah, I, I would certainly steer people towards a full cycle sale uh, type of cold call job versus an SDR job, um, because there there are a few more sort of humps that you have to get over to to get to a yes at that at that point. But no, you have to just practice. There's no shortcut for hard work, right? If you want to be a basketball player, you better be in the gym. I think it's a similar thing here, and you know, there's uh, all podcasts and books and all kinds of stuff will help, but there's uh, nothing that's that sort of covers for actually doing the job. Yeah, I guess my affinity with the cold calling is, as you, I think you alluded to a bit, it like helps you find your own voice and what you can say. Because if it comes out of someone else's mouth, it might make it sound great. But if it comes out of your mouth, it's not authentic. It, it kind of finds your own authenticity, again, quickly, at speed, at scale, with a lot of reps. I love it. That's a great takeaway. I, I went down a rabbit hole there. I didn't expect, but I love the idea of the practice is just being, getting the reps to, just to practice. Yeah, and scripts are a, point of that but ultimately you will have to figure out you know what what works for you and it's not going to be the exact same as someone else because you you're right authenticity is so important in sales it's one of the easiest things for buyers to sniff out is a lack of authenticity there because they spend their whole lives with humans they may not know a lot about your product and they may not be able to sniff out you know some of the challenges or, or perhaps some of the bs that some reps will will throw at them there but they know a person who's full of it when they when they hear one or who's fake. Have you have you seen uh, early reps that haven't had a lot of practice kind of put the facade on of what they believe a salesperson oh, yeah. sound like? 
And then they do that. And then you look at them like, who is that person? You know, no one is like a cartoon character. Like, it's not the person I hired. What are you doing? It's like a defense mechanism or a, you, you see that? I love it. Happens. Yeah, it happens all the time. And I, I think one of the most common versions of that is they try to replicate the top rep. They see the person who's been there 12 months or 18 months and, and is really successful in the job. And they just try to do exactly what they're doing. And it doesn't sound right. It doesn't feel right. And it's just not who they are. And the, the buyers know and it doesn't work. And then the, the, the worst part of that is then they sit there going, well, why does it work for Jim? He does. He says it. It sounds great. I say it. It sounds terrible. You know, and it, it's just not you. But there's there's no right way to to be good at sales. There's no one way. And so, you know, there, there are certain skills that you need to master. Of course, maybe we'll talk about some of those. But uh, ultimately, you know, you have to figure out what works for you, you know, stylistically and, and, and personality. You find yourself in a weird position as a leader when you're telling the most important advice to the person is just to be themselves. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and they're like it's hard. It's like, just just be yourself. <laughs> yeah. The the other side of it, you know, as a leader is to to appreciate who they are and not try to turn them all into you. Yeah. Because what works for me, what I am good at, is you know usually very different than what other folks are good at and so don't don't try to just make a bunch of mini use on the team yeah that's really great advice the and i i think if anyone's curious as to why jt has succeeded in sales roles many times over his career because he said if you are lucky enough to have a cold calling job jt you certainly you leaned into sales probably way more than most people ever will in their lifetime but i think one thing that's really difficult to do at startups is to continue to grow, particularly as a first sales hire and then into a leadership role. And you were able to do that at ChartHop in particular. So I think there's probably a lot of leaders that have gone through this conundrum themselves. So how were you able to grow not only as like the first sales hire, making calls yourselves and closing deals yourself, but then to growing out a team underneath you um, and still have that kind of respect and um, responsibility from the executive team. If you want to stay in the job, you have no choice. So you have to just sort of keep figuring it out. And I, I had a lot of support in that from you know a wide range of of sort of external kind of mentors who were help, able to help me kind of go through that process and uh, who had seen a, a lot of the challenges that that I had before. Um, but maybe I, pausing on that, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, appreciate your humbleness that you, you're just forced to, so you figured it out. But like, um, yes, mentors, I think, are certainly helped me in my career. How did you find those mentors? I know a lot of young people are looking for mentors. Sometimes I get random cold, like, one line, will you be my mentor? It's like, it's going to take a little bit more than that to get some of my time. But like, how did you find those people? And how would you recommend other people find those people? Because clearly that's been influential in all of our lives. And you know, helping us avoid some pitfalls or help us through tough, tough times or figure stuff out. They sort of fall into three categories and it's important to have some in, in a few different ones. I mean, one is people that you have worked directly with or directly for previously. Um, and that's really nice because they're going to know you really well and, and they're going to be able to, to sort of proactively tell you like, look, you're not that good at this sort of thing. So um, don't, don't do it. Hire, hire somebody for that. I was going to say, important to get, uh, obviously, 
choosing your manager, one of the most important things. Sounds like the long-term res- uh, value of that, in addition to short-term and all those things, is that they can be your mentor longer, right? So that sounds like, yeah. Yeah, people don't quit job. They quit managers. And so, yeah, having good managers and, and you know, in any kind of early stage job, you know, ultimately it has to start with conviction in the founder, conviction in the founding team to be able to take the company, you know, someplace better than where it is. Uh, you don't, uh, you don't have a lot of data. You don't have a lot of metrics, you know, to tell you like, this is a really compelling opportunity. So there's the one bucket of the people you've worked with. There's the second bucket of people that you've sort of encountered and seen out in the field. Maybe that's somebody that worked at a competitor that you saw regularly. Um, it might be other folks, you know, that, that you have gotten to know over the years in sort of tangential spaces. And then actually I had a, a, a guy that was recommended, Peter Worcester was recommended by Andreessen, uh, when I proactively went and, and I would really encourage people to be proactive about finding, you know, those types of folks, uh, because there's no shame in putting your hand up and going, I might be a little in over my head here. And did you ask Andreessen directly? Like if they had suggestions? I did. Yeah. I asked them if there was anybody, I was asking a bunch of folks if there was anybody that they, that they worked with and they, uh, introduced me to Peter. And then, you know, you sort of got to interview them because you need to also make sure that you, you two are going to sort of vibe a little bit and that you're going to have a, a, you know, a good feeling together and that you can trust them because there's going to be some, some tough conversations, you know, about challenges and there's going to be maybe some tough conversations about bosses and the state of the business and the state of, you know, maybe product or engineering challenges at an early stage startup. And so you got to find somebody that, that you have a good rapport with and that you can trust. And then, you know, you put a support system in and you, you just try to get better and, you know, read and there's, you know, networking groups like Pavilion um, and, and that type of stuff to sort of, you know, help and support you. And then you just go and try to do it and hopefully it works out. And if it doesn't, you know, erase the mistakes as quickly as possible, stick with what works and, uh, and kick on from there because the job is constantly evolving, which is the, the fun part of it, um, is to, to, that, that it's always sort of becoming something different if you're doing it right. If you're not doing it right, then it's not becoming something different. But if you're doing it right, sales are being made, the company's growing, then the nature of the job is evolving too. The, so there's, there's two other follow-ups on this I have. First, from a tactical standpoint, right? Like when you got the intro to Peter from Andreessen, was like the con, did he know the context that you were looking for a mentor? So, okay. So he went in eyes wide open that you were looking for mentorship. Yeah. He, he does this, uh, as a living, he's had a, a really good run, taking a few companies from zero to, to a hundred million in ARR and, um, you know, done, done quite well. And so this is what he, he does now for a living. So, um, yeah. And then, you know, you have, so maybe that's another thing to highlight. So it sounds like this was a paid, I don't even know all the details of it, but like, founders paying for and or investors paying for mentorship for junior leaders probably again is a good signal that the founders and or investors understand the complexity of this whole evolution of careers yeah and worth every penny i i I would argue because if you can get somebody to stay in it you mentioned sort of respect there jason i think one of the biggest things i had going for me in that role was the amount of respect that had come from proving that I could do this job. I had been, you know, the top rep, I guess. Like I was successful at this and then you start to build the team. And so when you give people advice or you sit down and have, you know, conversations, they're not sitting there going, yeah, but but why are you telling me how to close this deal? There's no chance you'd be able to close this deal. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a thought that goes through a lot of reps' heads out there 
when they sit down and do the pipeline review or they have a QBR and the VP of sales starts saying, well, what about this? And what about that? And they're thinking, if you're thinking of this tactic, I can assure you I have already thought of it. So I have a curve, kind of a curveball question. If you're a, um, if you're a rep, so back in the olden days, and now you've been on both sides of it, and the leader is providing advice that is not helpful because they've never actually sold it. As a rep, you know, if you're smart, you're like, this is really helpful. Thank you. Oh, your advice helped me close this deal. But you're really just like, you're going to mess this up. Like, how do you, how do you recommend reps? I know it's a tough question, but how would you rep recommend reps navigating those situations? Sometimes you just got to sit and take it. And sometimes it's just like in the best interest of everybody for you to just, to just sort of sit and, and take it. I think it really comes down to the personality of, you know, the VP of sales that, that you ultimately work for, or, you know, that regional VP or whatever that, you know, kind of frontline manager looks like. Can you have that conversation with them and say, Hey, uh, I really don't want to inject you into this deal at the, you know, at the, at the one yard line. Um, it's tough. But I guess is that, would that be a signal of a good leader, a good leader that knows that they don't know and is just like, hey, I don't know, here's some ideas, but you do, you know better than me kind of mentality? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that's a, a mistake that a lot of leaders make. You have a rep who has spent hours and hours and hours on a deal, and now you want to pop up when we're sort of negotiating price and you want to talk about how to run the deal or like how to get it over the line. You don't understand the dynamics. You don't understand the key drivers for the business. You don't understand buyer personalities. Like, have a conversation, offer advice. Yes, manage your reps, but at the same time, you know, understand that they may have already invested twenty-five hours and a fifteen-minute conversation is not going to get you up to speed in a way that allows you to make you know extremely give extremely effective advice. I, uh, in fact, it could be harmful. I, I have one of the best reps I've ever worked for. We're very close. He calls me the closer because at the, the one yard line, I came in and opened my mouth for 15 minutes to help close the deal. And we walked out of the meeting. He's like, I think I just lost that deal because of you. Like, thanks closer. And like, fortunately he forgave me and I learned my lesson. I was like, <laughs> so he'll even text me once in a while. I was like, what's up closer. I was just like, Oh dude. But yeah. I've, uh, I worked for a few VPs that I would, you know, you try to keep away from your deals. Uh, and I think a lot of reps will, will be able to, to relate to that. So it, you know, it's incumbent on the manager to recognize those situations. And to... Yeah. That restraint is important. Um, let me, so you said Peter was worth every penny and I'm sure some of the other mentors were as well, but what, can you give us some specifics on the types of stuff that he helped you really breakthrough or maybe just learn a lot faster than you would have otherwise? Yeah. There, I mean, there were a horde of things that could have easily been screwed up around, you know, it starts with timing, right? When should I do X? When should I hire an SDR? What should that profile look like? When do I need sales operations? When do I need sales enablement? What tools should, should sort of come in, you know, when, and then you get into some of the sort of tricky managerial things, right? When you start and you've got a team of four, maybe I've got some territories. I'm probably just in like a round robin free for all type of thing. But as a company scales, there are some tough conversations that have to be had with reps, even top performing reps to say territories getting cut or you know, you're, you're going to work certain deals uh, that, you know, maybe you previously weren't or you're not going to work some of these small dollar deals that for a lot of reps is like this was easy money. 
you know, on, on the bottom half of, uh, of sort of the ACV side of things. And so kind of coaching through how to frame some of the scale decisions that have to be made in the best interest of the team and in the best interest of the company, which may not always necessarily be in the best interest of your top, you know, one or two or three reps. And you know, they're going to be annoyed about it. And I was annoyed about it when I was one of those folks, um, was a really, really big help The the kind of person to person sort of conversations and how to think about the best interest of the business as a whole, as you scale, were were some of the key areas and then timing as well, uh, we're, we're, we're kind of the big two, two things there. Yeah. That, that's really great to hear. Like, I think people care to figure out, okay, I got a mentor. Then what do I ask them? Where, what direction do I take? So that, like that, that's really helpful to hear. Try to, I would encourage people in those conversations to try to come prepared with some things. Otherwise it just sort of turns into therapy, right? I just sort of sit there and I kind of, this is what's bothering me. This is what's stressing. It's like, what, what are the actual things that need to happen next to, to get this business you know, to a better place than it is right now. Uh, and so try to come, you know, with, with the real sort of tactical side of things, occasional therapy. So I think it's also great advice for any aspiring mentors and sales reps and leaders will be there. It's like, that's what I think about a lot is like, what do we need to do next? What's the sequencing of events to make this work? And that's where the kind of experience can be really valuable for someone. It's just like, maybe that's the question from the mentee. What do I do next? And the mentors, this is what we do next. Yeah, but there's and it really, there's a horde of things I can do next, right? There's so many things I could do next. How to sequence them, when to do them, you know, it really, really important to think about. Yeah, right. The the best mentors and coaches can help you kind of cut through the noise and figure out how to prioritize that stuff. Uh, I think that that's really helpful, and that's good advice too for any reps too when they're going to their one on ones with managers is to come very prepared, right? So you can extract the most that you can out of that meeting. Yeah, I really I don't want those one on ones to just turn into like, let's just sort of talk about each one of your individual, you know, your deals in a sort of sloppy fashion, right? Let's try to help be a better rep. And that will make, you know, a larger impact than us just figuring out, you know, strategizing how to close some, you know, mid-value deal in your pipeline. Yeah. Let me ask you this piece as well with Chart Hop. So, right, you came in like the the head of sales title, which is commonplace, right, for these sales sales leader hires that are early stage that might not have a team yet. And you grew into that VP of sales role where you had a full team underneath you. If you look back, how did you think, how, how did you think of yourself as a sales leader in the beginning versus at the end? What, what had changed in you the most? What, what abilities or skills had changed the most um, that gave you confidence that like you were a true VP of sales by the end? It's the, it's the focus on systemization and processes. The team got to 43 and it is the fact that you don't, you stop approaching each individual problem or challenge as a one-off that needs to be solved. And you start to approach it as, well, what do I need to do? Cause I've got 19 AEs. So how do I figure out a way that, you know, this problem doesn't impact all of them, or they can all take advantage of this opportunity to be better. And you have to approach everything with a much sort of horizontal view rather than I need to make the sale. I need to make more outbound calls. I need to increase my sequences, right? I need to tighten up, you know, a little bit of a focus around ICP. It's like, I need to create ICP material and I need to work and ensure that I instill that ICP knowledge across the entire, you know, sales team. And so 
it's it's really that thinking about process and consistency and scale more so than just like trying to make the turnstile turnover, you know, bring in a few bucks and let's get to tomorrow. How did, how did you think about that as the first, when you were selling yourself as an IC about how to be like, is this something that's scalable? Did you not just like, how do I sell this? And then I'll figure out what I'm doing later and trying to compartmentalize that into operational excellence. Or like, how was your thinking on that as you approached, you know, obviously generating revenue, which was the most important thing. Hiring your first rep will force you to have to think about that. Um, one of the biggest things I would encourage people who are in that first sort of sales role to do, even if you don't think that you're going to be the one who goes on to the VP of sales, is just start writing everything down. Write down what works, write down what's not working. If you have a little process, you get a piece of information about a competitor, like that is the start of the competitive battle card. Write it all down. Otherwise, you end up in the position that I'm in where you're six months into the job. It's going great. Sales are good. It's time to hire somebody. You get them in and then you go, oh, like what do, oh, now I got to just brain dump everything. And you're sitting there for two days just banging out every single little thing. And their eyes are glazed over by like halfway through the first day being like, like, is this getting through to you? You got to remember all this, dude. Come on. The preparation for that was horrible. I mean, I just, I remember sitting there for, for day, just like this massive, nasty outline of things that I would then kind of go back and try to rearrange into what I thought was a coherent way to, you know, to teach, to teach uh, Kyle in that case. And so I would really encourage people to try to think about all of the things that you're, you know, ultimately going to need, like the things that you have established work, things that you know you're going to need to be able to tell people, like, what's your infosec process? What happens when a contract redline comes back? What do we do on all of this? Because you're going to get the question. Reps going to go make the first sale. They're going to turn up and they're going to ask you. And so maybe that becomes the opportunity where you write it down. But if you've got kind of a knowledge base you know, mapped out on Notion or whatever else you use, uh, you'll be in a- Right, way better to do it during the onboarding so they don't have to ask you later. So here it is, you know where to find it. We covered that in the onboarding. And that was a big mistake that I, you know, you, you can, you can, you know, you quickly overcome it. It's just really annoying. And you know that then the body of work you've put together there is is somewhat incomplete. You know, you just go from, it's gone. Oh yeah, that thing. Cause you're, you're just barraged with questions on you know how something works it's just tough because when you started from scratch everything's in your head and you feel good you remember it you know smart enough person it's all here i got it you know and and off we go but then you have to transfer it to somebody else and that's where the mess starts and when and when you went through that scaling process when did you hire why well, did you and when did you hire a middle manager uh or an sdr lead what was the timing of that i get that question a lot um, and then the follow on is like, when, what, what, well, what, what, what did you learn to do better next time? I think the biggest mistake people make is they try to set some sort of like in three months, we want to hire our first SDR. I see a lot of reps that fail in jobs because the company didn't set them up to be successful. That was my biggest thing was that I wasn't going to let a rep, if a rep failed, I wasn't going to come home and sit here and think to myself, did they fail because the company didn't put them in a position to be successful? And I think a lot of 
you know, we always look at resumes and we want to go, oh, they stayed there for 13 months and they stayed there for 11 months. And in a lot of cases, yeah, the, the rep, you know, wasn't the right fit for the job, probably should have been hired or you know, it, did, it didn't work out. But in a lot of cases, the company is to blame, not the rep. And so when you think about when do I hire a, an SDR team? Well, do I have some messaging that's going to work? Can I equip them with some messaging? Do I have some collateral? Like, do I have the things that they're going to need to be able to sort of nurse, you know, and and bring folks kind of through a, a pipeline to get to a meeting? You know, do I have some logos? Do I have some case studies, some testimonials? Like, do I have any reason that somebody in receiving a cold message should want to buy into what we're talking about? And so when you can say confidently yes to those questions, okay, now it's probably time. And I, I just, I got very, very lucky on this one that I was able to hire a BDR manager to start the team. I had somebody that I had, um, my wife actually had worked with previously and the timing lined up perfectly. And so I was able to hire him and to bring on uh, another uh, woman under him. And then the two of them, you know, sort of built it out from there. If anybody is presented with that opportunity, I would strongly recommend that you jump at it because managing a BDR team is a very labor-intensive process. And if you could find somebody who can do the job and is willing to sort of be the BDR at first, figure it all out, similar to the way I did it on the AE side of things, and then kind of grow and scale the team, uh, you're going to be in a much better position than you know if you're trying to manage your first two or three reps on one side and you're trying to manage three or four BDRs fresh out of school, um, you know, the enablement piece of that uh, is a huge body of work. And uh, I love that we all laughed at that, The uh, probably because we've been the BDRs who were yeah. unruly, and then we had to manage the unruly BDRs. I'm like, oh, this is exhausting. They're chasing cats here. Yeah. Um, and so, and then on the AE side, uh, you know, the team just hit a size where they're sort of, yeah, how many reps was it when you hired the middle, like a, a manager, and how'd you? I think we were nine at that point. We had a clear plan to get to to fifteen, and it, it just becomes, you know, painfully obvious that you're if you're going to do that, somebody's got to manage. That. What went well with that hire, or what didn't go well with that hire? You know, what would you sell to other folks that need to that are thinking about making that hire? Because I just see that as a pitfall of scaling at so many companies. You do all this other stuff, right? Which is already really, really hard. And you get there and then you hire a middle manager that like collapses something like, it's like, yeah, what did you learn about all that? What would you impart in our listeners? I don't think I gave enough direction. I, you know, we hired somebody who was sort of veteran and I just thought like, great, she knows what she's doing here. She's- I can finally go on vacation. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go on paternity leave actually. Um, and, uh, and in reality, I needed to provide a little bit more direction in terms of what works here, what our processes look like, what are the metrics that we're managing towards. And, and I, I should have, I, I really kind of failed at setting her on the right course to, you know, effectively manage the, the team in terms of. Okay. So not micromanage, but m more management or guidance than you probably would assume. Yeah. Yeah. It just in terms of. And this, it all comes back to like sort of thinking about things more horizontally. It's like, what, what does she need to be able to, to, to get the most out of these nine reps? Um, and, and, you know, what is our process look like? How do we run deals? Um, you know, who are the people that we need to talk to? And then, you know, you convey that so that then they have a series of things that in those one-on-ones and in their team meetings and in just sort of examining any type of deal or progress or interviewing to hire folks 
that they know that that we're looking for kind of a series of values around us yeah and i think that is that's also one of the common traps i think when you're making a one-off hire in this case a manager or even say like a rev ops person for the first time is that right you just built a team to nine aes and probably multiple sdrs at that point so you had spent the last six 12 months scaling that interview process like finding repeatability in that and having a training program that you could just iterate on now all of a sudden you got to build that all out again from scratch for this one hire and right that means like a brand new training process you can steal some some parts but other parts you can't and i think i mean i've, I've definitely failed this before myself but you go you you try to shortcut it and you realize that you just need to put in the work up front beforehand to actually onboard them for success. Yeah, you just make, I think it's so easy when you're the one who's been in the job from the beginning, it's so easy to make assumptions that they will understand this or that this will be inherently clear. And you always have to err on the side uh, of people not inherently understanding it, lay it out. And if you spend one minute and they go, yeah, you know, I, I totally get that. You didn't need to explain it then, you know. We're, we're fine. I went to the pharmacy the other day. My daughter has a has a little ear infection and the pharmacist says, you know, give her this antibiotic, give her 6.7 milliliters. And the woman is demonstrating to me, you know, on the thing, like what 6.7 milliliters looks like on the syringe. And I, you know, thanks, I got it. But it, but it, it, that I was thinking about that as I walked away going, I can't believe she had to understand to explain that. Um, you have to do something similar in sales. And if the person goes, yeah, that's fine, then great. But better to show them on the syringe than to just assume that they can properly dose their child. <laughs> um, let's, let's dig into a little bit this stuff tactically here for a second. So when you are hiring those first set of AEs, what do you have? Are you have any like principles that are guiding you? Do you have a process? Walk us through your framework. there. Big time. So trust number one thing is trust. That is, the whole thing that you got to have because the rep is going to have a huge opportunity to make a massive mess for the company. They could sell the wrong deals. They can make bad first impressions. They, uh, you're going to need to trust that they know how to run and manage a deal because you're not, you're probably not going to have an understanding of what an optimal sales process looks like, but you're definitely not going to have the tools in place to properly, you know, monitor a sales process. And so trust is where it starts. Um, and trust is so important in the sale as an early stage rep because it's rare that the company is ultimately buying where you are. They're really buying more likely where you're going or what is coming next. They are also going to need to trust that InfoSec is sort of buttoned up enough because you probably don't have something like a SOC 2. Uh, and they're going to have to trust that you're going to be around because they are taking a much uh, more, they're taking much more personal risk than they would be if they buy an established brand. Um, and I learned that in an extremely painful way uh, when I was working at Sale Through. So trust is a, is a big one. You have to find somebody that you have kind of complete trust in. Are they going to tell you the truth? Like, are they going to sugarcoat it? Because sugarcoating is, uh, that is really dangerous stuff in an early stage startup. They got to be really optimistic, right? We have to believe that we're going somewhere better. It's not very fun working at an early stage startup that's not making progress and you need that optimism and then you need resiliency as well because there are going to be, and I go through this right now, deals that you lose 
that you know in one to two years you're going to win. You may be, uh, have InfoSec challenges. You may have feature completeness issues. You may have a buyer that's unwilling to, to sort of take the personal risk. And worst of all, the deal might just be too big for the company. Like you may not be ready to, to truly service that deal. And so you have to understand, like, we will be in a better place and, and these checks will be coming. Um, but those are sort of the big three things is the trust, the optimism, because get, you get your teeth kicked so much. And, and then that resiliency to, to bounce back are the things that I'm looking for in that first sales hire. Um, from a what about intellect? Would you say like elevated intellect in the yes. first hire? To okay, absolutely. Because we talked a lot about sort of systemization and process, but there is a lot of things that are going to be said for the first time. You know, there there are going to be a lot of answers to questions that have never come out of anybody's mouth. There's going to be a lot of questions you've never heard before. There's going to be problems that you didn't even know were real challenges. And so, yeah, is to the extent that you can find somebody who has that kind of elevated intellect, a little more personality, you know, a little more likability, uh, really, really good on their feet. That's really important because it's really easy to lose deals. Winning deals is hard. Any schmo can come out and lose a deal, right? And there are so many opportunities to blow the deal. Little questions that may seem, you know, innocuous, innocuous or unimportant. Um, may actually end up being the big thing. And so you need somebody who can handle all of that and not screw up those precious few leads that you are getting. So anybody listening who hasn't hired this role, it, sounds, it probably sounds like it's unicorn hunting that you're discussing, but we've I've, I've hired this role a bunch of times to a bunch of startups. So what would you say, what percentage of reps actually fit this profile that you're discussing? Is it top 5%? top 1%, like, is it one out of a hundred? I mean, again, cause it's not a unicorn. They exist. We've done the role. We've hired these people. Like it's probably five, probably 5%. Yeah. You got to want to do it too. I always think about interviewing. There's sort of two categories. There's all the things I can't control or I can't teach. And then there's all the things I can. So I want to start by going through all the things I can't control. Do you work hard? You know, what's your personality like? Are you likable? Right? Do you ask good questions? Just as a general rule, are you a curious person? Right? It, you know, if, if you don't work hard, I'm, I'm not going to fix that. I'm not going to be naive. But I like the self-selection. I think that's key. A lot of people don't want to work at a startup, so you're already going to cut out all of those people. So if they're already curious and they're interested in this role and willing to take that risk, they have a different risk profile that already kind of sets them up to be more likely to be successful in this role, and then you can kind of screen them for the other. Yep. And then from, you know, and as part of that, I think I would really encourage founders, like be very honest with somebody about what they're walking into. You see a lot of folks that sign up for a role like this or a similar role, and then they walk into it and it, you know, product market fit isn't what we thought. Oh, those big logos are actually on little pilots. Like, oh, InfoSec is not necessarily buttoned up. We're not sure if that next funding round is going to come in. Like hiring the wrong person in this role will set you back, you know, a significant amount. Uh, so don't don't sugarcoat it because they're gonna figure it out. Right. If you're almost if you're almost if you're you're almost talking them out of the job and they still want it, it's like a good sign. Yeah, and and then I would encourage on the rep side of things. Yes, love you know people love to talk about metrics and analytics and all of that thing. End of the day, when you put your head on the pillow. 
and you're considering this role, are you thinking about it? Are you already seeing yourself in this? Are you excited thinking about the prospect of getting after that, knowing how hard it's going to be and what a slog it's going to be? If you're not, do not take the job because you're just not going to be a- hey, hey, whatever you think, it's going to be harder. So, yeah. Oh, so if you're when, yeah. skeptical, it's, it's going to be debilitating. Yeah, there's so much you, there's so much hard stuff you don't know about yet. You know, maybe you know the space a little bit, but if you're not having a little bit of that, you know, that kind of that crush sort of feeling, like if you're not having that in your gut, then you're in, you're in a bad spot. Um, we're, we're running into the last like five, 10 minutes of, of our conversation today. So there's a couple things I want to make sure we get to. One is talking about getting, having someone hired above you, but before we get there, just bringing back to this, like closing up the hiring stuff, right? We talked about the resiliency, optimism, intellect, and trust as like key factors for any first sales hire. How do you test for those in the interview process? What signals are you looking for? Yeah. So some of it you're going to pick up over the course of the interview, right? Some of the personality type of things, you know, on the trust side, like, are they, are they reliable? Did they send a thank you note? You know, if you give them little tidbits, I always want to have a demo as part of a, of an interview process. I want to try to put a few breadcrumbs down. Like, did they did they bring those back in? You know, as as part of that demo, I want to see how they're going to run a, a demo. You know, how they're going to run discovery because you also don't have a bunch of time to to sales train for those early hires, right? You kind of need somebody who's who's more or less ready to go. I think work ethic is one of the toughest things. So references are going to be sort of crucial uh, on that. Although if you can't find you know one or two people to say nice things about you, yeah. You're, you're really, really bad. That's a, that's a really good signal. It's a low bar. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and so, you know, hopefully you can fish around on, on back channels, but sort of just, you know, hopefully you can find some numbers from a previous job, you know, some metrics that they can talk about and how they, how they got there. I think you, you will, when talking about sales process, you'll be able to pick up a little bit on kind of work ethic and how they approach that. So those are some of the things there. And then, you know, trust is, is another you know, sort of really big part. Like I would never hire anybody for an early stage job that I haven't sat across and, and had a meal with. Um, you know, I think that that matters. I heard this the other day. We're, we're going to do this to one of the companies I work with uh, in Germany is um, bringing them on a sales call before you hire them. And they said it was really interesting because you're going to have to be in the car because they, they sell robotics, AI software. And they're like, we're going to bring them in the car so we're going to have to get to know them a little bit, see if you like spending time with them, then bring them into the meeting and see like, we know they don't know anything. So are they able to add a little value or like keep their mouth shut or like, it's a really, it's a rather risky, it's late, obviously the last stage, but it's an interesting, like one, would you hire someone that you wouldn't bring into a sales call? Probably not. So that's a good rubric. And then two, how do they handle themselves? And do you want to go to another call with them? Can they ask a one question that adds a little value, even though they don't know anything? Like, how do they handle it? So that was, a, that was like a, obviously a huge time investment, but quite an interesting test of what like the sitting across from them. Yeah, I don't know if I would be uh, brave enough to go that far, but you did just hit on one of I think the hardest skills to learn, which is knowing when to shut your mouth. You know, are they going to try to help conversation? Yeah, knowing when to shut up is one of the toughest things to learn as a sales rep, and um, you know, in order to be to be really good at this, you need to know when to be quiet. And that's more often than not. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right. La last piece here. So you've, one of the toughest pills for any sales leader to swallow at a startup is when someone gets hired in above them. 
and JT, I know you, you had this experience. So can you talk us through what that was like and um, what it was, what the emotions were going through it and ultimately what happened? Yeah, it sucks. Like it's, it stings. Like let's not, you know, salespeople are full of pride too and it stings. Um, I was very fortunate when I uh, was at an earlier job in my career, I got to watch a senior rep. We were a small team who thought he was going to become the VP of sales, um, not become the VP of sales. And they hired somebody externally. And in a rash decision, he decided to quit. Um, and he walked away from a, a really fat pipeline that I was able to inherit. I mean, I, it, this was probably for me personally a, a six-figure decision because I inherited this incredible pipeline. And I always, that always stuck with me. Like, don't do that. You know, if you're the early stage hire, the beauty of it is that the job only gets easier. There's nothing harder. The sale will never be harder than when you have like just raised a series A, you have like one piece of marketing collateral, you have one customer logo you can use, and you have no case studies. Like, that is some brilliant wisdom right there, man. I like it. So don't go do all of the hard work and then quit when it's gotten easier. You've already done the hard bit. So it stunk. Take a couple days to sort of sit there and, and feel a little bad for yourself. But then realize, one, I've already done the hard work. Two, you know, I had a clear role defined to, to go on. And in my case, it was just we want to hire somebody. You know, the team's gotten pretty big. We want to hire somebody with with you know, sort of a proven track record and more seniority, especially as you start to to go out to think about going out for uh, for a big Series C. Um, and three, remember that you're, you know, in most cases, certainly in mine, you're sitting on a huge amount of equity. I think one of the mistakes that salespeople make is that when the going's good, when the going's good, they think it's them. When the going's bad, they think it's the company. When you're in a good, that isn't wait, that isn't true. That isn't true. That is when you're in a good sales spot and the going's good, it's pretty rare that you're just going to jump to another really good spot. You know, there are points you see it slow down, you know, the wave kind of crests and it's time to go. But if the going's good and you're making money and you're making sales and the company's headed in the right direction, you're probably in a good spot. And so in that case, you know, the, the resiliency and the optimism take over and you say, well, yeah, we're going to bring on somebody I can hopefully learn quite a bit from. I've got a clearly defined role. The going's good. I'm sitting on a huge amount of equity because I was the first revenue hire. And um, and after a couple of days, you sort of kick on. And um, but yeah, it, it stings. But ultimately, you know what I what you realize fairly quickly, if you're willing to set your ego aside, is that what is in the best interest of you is to sit here. And so, yeah, I would I would encourage everybody to to really, you know, be thoughtful about that. Don't do something rash but also realize that you've already done the hard work. So now go enjoy the simpler life. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that, that is so helpful, I think, for a lot of people to hear. Um, and knowing that you had that experience early on in your career to give that context is pretty invaluable. Um, last question we'd like to get people out of here on is, what is one lesson or piece of advice that you think about almost every day? You know what? It was a, it's a piece of advice that I got uh, from a friend's dad. Uh, that life is just one giant cold call and just remember you know no matter who you, if you're the doctor walking in to meet a new patient you know if you're me calling a senior living operator ultimately life is just one giant series of cold calls 
and you know be ready to make them be ready to receive them and you never know what's going to happen and so have as many conversations as possible um and and then you know the other one is just like remember that this is a skill set it it does require practice it does take time it takes repetition and um yeah there are a few folks that are sort of naturals at it but they are a very very small minority i think i think we should start a, an academy for children getting them skilled up on their cold calls early for the rest of their lives get yeah we can, like uh, the cutco knife selling for uh yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, JT, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you, guys. It's been fun. So, well, all right, is... yeah, you can find me. It's JT at AugustHealth.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, JT Levine without an E. And uh, plug plug August Health real quick. Give us the, what's the, what's the pit? Yeah, so we um we are a modern purpose built uh, electronic health record specifically for senior living. So. Uh, I actually was looking for something that was a bit more kind of real life uh, in my next role as I was getting ready to leave Chardhaw uh, and was lucky enough to find these guys. So we're a small Series A startup um, and we make software to manage senior living communities. So assisted living and memory care for folks with Alzheimer's and dementia to uh, help those operators take care of the the needs of the families uh, and the needs of the residents. Well, that's awesome that you found something that's got some additional mission behind it. And obviously you have just like some crazy good experiences in the early startup sales space. So uh, I'm sure they're lucky to have you, but thanks again for your time uh, and really looking forward to getting this out to, uh, to the community.